Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's a good-looking group in front of me here. Um, it's my privilege this morning to kick off our new series entitled God at Work, in which we explore how we as kingdom citizens can outwork the kingdom of God in our workplaces. Now, before you switch off because you feel that you are not someone in a workplace or someone who's currently not working, let me help you by defining what we mean by work. It's anything that you put mental or physical energy towards to achieve a goal or purpose. So if you are working nine to five in your office and getting a paycheck every month, you're working. If you are at home raising kids, you're working. If you are volunteering for an NGO and get paid nothing, you are working. And the series applies to you. So please don't disqualify yourself. Like Matt mentioned, we are going to be running the series over the month of July, and every week we're going to split this preaching time between two people. Don't worry, we're not all going to preach for 40 minutes each. That being said, I have 15 minutes on the clock, so strap in, we're going to get through this super fast. <laughs> okay. So, um, Aiden, should I be doing something different? No? Okay. Okay, sorry, I can hear an echo. If we define the kingdom of God as where the rule and reign of Jesus is present in hearts and minds and action, then I think we can all agree that a gathering like this on a Sunday is where the kingdom is both present and advancing. Anyone disagree? Okay, good. We can also probably say that anytime we have a church event, whether it be a life group or a uh, prayer meeting or worship night, that the kingdom of God is present and advancing. But can we say that Monday through Friday in our workplaces or in our homes? Do we believe that the kingdom of God is present and advancing in those places? Christian culture has created an artificial separation between marketplace people and ministry people. And let me explain what I mean by that. People who sometimes are referred to as full-time in ministry are those who are salaried by a church or working for a Christian organization. And then there's this other group of people who are considered marketplace people, people who get their salaries from outside the church and work outside a church context. And for years, as someone who's considered to be in the marketplace, I have suffered from an inferiority complex. And maybe you felt the same way too. I have felt that those who are in full-time ministry, who work in the church or who advance the gospel through missions in the church are somehow more spiritual than me, somehow more equipped than I am to advance the kingdom, and somehow more valuable to the kingdom than I am. I have felt that my being in the marketplace is less pleasing to God because somehow I am less effective for God in that place. But that's not true. Because scripture does not subscribe to those divisions. We are all the church, and in 1 Peter verse 9, we see that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who have been taken from darkness into light. To what? To declare the praises of the one who has saved us. That's who we are. That is who we are as the church. And the church is not a geography. It's not a building. It's a people. 
We are the church, not this building. So as the church, we are equipped by the same living word. We are empowered by the same Holy Spirit. We are sent by the same king to achieve the same purpose, which is the advancement of the kingdom of God. We are not inferior. We are equal team members with one another. If you don't believe me that the Bible doesn't differentiate between marketplace or ministry, let's look at Hebrews 11. It's a chapter often referred to as a chapter on faith, in which the people within the chapter are commended for their faith and obedience to God. But what did those people do? By faith, Abraham moved to and lived in a foreign land. Moses' parents hid him for three months. Sarah conceived in barrenness. Gideon enforced justice. Moses abdicated his royal position. Rahab hid spies, and Samson defeated lions. Mothers, farmers, judges, and nobility, all working in different spheres and bringing the kingdom in different ways, but they had one thing in common. They believed God, and they obeyed him. The enemy wants to minimize the power of our faithful obedience to God in the workplace because he understands what an impact that will have when we realize how much power that holds. The church is not the kingdom. It's part of the kingdom, a vital part of the kingdom, but it is not the entirety of the kingdom of God. There is kingdom significance and purpose in the unique places God has us. And the first step is to believe that. Once we believe it, how do we outwork it? Well, I'm glad you asked, because this is what this entire series is about. And this morning, I'm just going to put up some scaffolding for us from the Word of God that preachers that come after, like Charles, are going to fill in and add color and life to. We're going to be in the book of Daniel, and I literally have eight minutes. There's no way on God's creation that I'm going to be able to do justice to the book of Daniel in eight minutes. We are barely going to scratch the surface. So I encourage you, please go do a slow read through this book. It is rich in truth and application for us in the here and now. To provide a little bit of context, Daniel was a young Israelite man, and the Israelites were the chosen covenant people of God. And he lived in the kingdom of Judah. And around 600 BC, so before Jesus was born, Babylon, a pagan nation, conquered the Israelite nation. And after being conquered, they conducted a series of deportations or exiles where they took Israelite nobility and Israelites who had skills and craftsmen and took them to Babylon from Jerusalem, all so that they could be used for the benefit of Babylon the very nation who conquered them. So Daniel has now gone from being surrounded by people of the same faith who had the same outworking of their faith, who worshiped the same God, and who went to the temple together, to being in this very ungodly nation of Babylon. So much so that Babylon is often used in the Bible as a symbol of human rebellion against God. That's how bad they were. He's now in a place where his faith is not only unknown, but actively opposed. And in this place, what is God's instruction to the exiles? It's in Jeremiah 29, verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare 
you will find your welfare. Daniel and his three friends are chosen to enroll in what can only be described as maybe Babylon University. So basically, over the next three years, they have to learn the culture, they have to learn the literature, and they have to learn the laws of the kingdom of Babylon. Also, that they can be used in Babylon effectively. Perhaps you can relate to Daniel. Perhaps you feel that being a Christian in your workplace is like being a foreigner in another land that you are misunderstood and misrepresented. In this situation, what does Daniel do? Does he decide, forget God, I'm not gonna follow him anymore, I'm just gonna fully assimilate into the culture that I'm in, I'm gonna worship their gods and just go their way? Or does he say, there's no way I'm serving this awful king and this nation, get me out of here, I'm going back to Judah? Because there were some Jews who did go back to Judah. Daniel chooses neither option. Instead, he chooses to continue to be true to his identity as a God-fearing man while serving an ungodly king in a secular job. It's not long before there is a clash between Daniel's faith and the Babylonian ways. And this incident that we're going to share about was regarding Jewish laws about food that was declared unclean. Let's look at Daniel 1 verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. With wisdom and tact, Daniel refused to participate in the things that contradict his faith. Him and his friends are given permission to follow Daniel's own diet for a trial period of 10 days, and at the end of 10 days, they are found to be healthier than the students who are following the Babylonian diet. So much so that the eunuch decides that everyone needs to follow the Daniel's diet instead of the Babylonian diet. Daniel's love of God manifested in obedience to God, and this resulted in a change of conduct for everyone. Where do we, with wisdom and tact, need to draw a line against ungodliness in our workplaces? Through God's, the next three scriptures basically chronicle Daniel's rise within the Babylonian ranks, within the government. And it's through God's equipping and Daniel's work ethic that this happens. And Daniel 1 verse 17 says, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So natural abilities through learning and skills and prophetic abilities through interpretation of dreams and visions. Then King Darius, one of the Babylonian kings, says of Daniel, I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. And then later on, Daniel became distinguished above all the high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. When we use our natural and supernatural God-given gifts and talents to excel in our workplaces, we reflect the image of the one who we are made in. We allow God to be glorified through those things. When our reputation is one of integrity and excellence, we open doors, not just natural doors for career advancement, 
but spiritual doors to give us a platform to speak into people's lives and to share God with them. And isn't that what advancing the kingdom is all about? Introducing people to the king of that kingdom? You might think these are small things, but they're not. They are significant things that we get to outwork in our workplaces. Daniel's living and active faith is not all sunshine and roses. There comes a point where he is required to bow down and worship before idols, in fact, in two different places. And in each time, he refuses to do so. And the first time, he's thrown into a fiery furnace with his friends to be burnt alive. And the second time, he's thrown into a lion's den so that hungry lions can eat him. Both times, God miraculously delivers him. And it's that miraculous deliverance that is a sign to the Babylonian kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, that God is alive. They, Darius says this in Daniel 6.26, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. The supernatural in our workplaces releases the power of the living God, a power that no one can deny. Are we trusting for the supernatural to break out in our workplaces in the same way that we trust for it to happen on a Sunday? Because it's the same God the same spirit, and the same call. Daniel embodies what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. He uses his gifts and talents to benefit his workplace, and he remains faithful to God by choosing peaceful non-participation in ungodliness. He always remembers that his allegiance is first to God and then to man. While I was praying for this series, I felt God give me a picture, and it was of football players sitting on a bench in full kit. And I apologize if it's not the Bears. I know nothing about football, so I don't actually even know what team the picture is by me. So, <laughs> sorry. Um, so these are players. So, sorry, was that a bad thing? Shouldn't put the face up there? Okay. <laughs> so these are players that you can see are fully kitted out. At a moment's notice, they can, get on the t they can get on the field and play. And in the picture that I felt God gave me, those players were asked, what do you see yourself as? And they said, we're spectators. Because they didn't understand that they were teammates and fully equipped. In the picture, only a quarter of the team was on the field and struggling to take ground against the other team. I felt that God was saying to us, we need to remind ourselves that we are teammates, that we are equipped and called to take ground for the kingdom in the spheres that God has placed us, that we are not to look at ourselves and disqualify ourselves and bench ourselves as though we are not able to do so. I feel like he wants to break mindsets through this series that he's going to hold, he wants to hold a mirror up to us so that we can see ourselves as those players, fully equipped, fully ready, and fully able to take ground together as a community of faith. 
Now more than ever, we need to be the church outside these walls. There are people who may never walk through these walls, but they can encounter the kingdom of God because they have encountered us and Jesus in us. We cannot do that if we don't believe that's what we are called to. As a believer in Jesus, we all have a mandate to advance the kingdom, which means that we are all sent. We are sent to the colleague in the cubicle next to us, to the student in the library with us, to the client in the boardroom with us, to the family in our home around us. We are all sent. And as people who are sent, we are also equipped by his word, empowered by his spirit, and given the same mission in submission to King Jesus. Allow God to change your perspective of yourself. Let's stop being spectators and start being teammates together for the kingdom. Charles? Good morning, everybody. Uh, what a teammate, huh, Sheetal? <laughs> uh, Anthem, how are we doing? We doing good? Yeah? <clears throat> My name's Charles, and um, some of you may be wondering if I have an exciting story about this silly boot <laughs> I'm wearing on one of my feet. Uh, let's just say a moonlit evening run, <laughs> uh, uneven sidewalk and pavement in Chicago, and uh, a slippery pair of glasses, you know, dripping down the nose, is a surprisingly potent recipe for a, a humbling tumble on the pavement, <laughs> um, and a perfect way to get your hands on, you know, these limited edition Reebok pump, you know, style boots. <laughs> um, this morning I'll be sharing from a few uh, biblical texts to equip and encourage us as we examine uh, the encouragement commonly uttered in Christian circles to live in the world and not of it, right? We heard that phrase just now that uh, Sheetal shared. But before we get too much further, I'm trusting, whether you're joining us for the first time or uh, you've been with us as a longtime follower of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit will encourage you, all of us, who found this to be a difficult area to be faithful in, especially in our present age. Let's first start with a passage from Paul's second letter to Timothy in chapter 3. Verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Every good work. Whether teaching a student the music fundamentals to require to develop a mastery of an instrument, extracting a tooth to prevent the spread of decay uh, in someone's mouth, or simply carrying a glass of water from the fridge to the table. I, I think we'd all agree that every one of us wants all of our endeavors, we want all the work that we apply, our strength, and our skill to, we want all that to yield fruit. We want it to be good. Nobody loves spilt milk. <laughs> um, thank you, God, for blowing power 
into every page of our Bibles, whether it's the version that you see on a screen or the, the pages that we like to flip, uh, to equip us for every good work. We've had a lot of new faces here at Anthem as of late, and it's so exciting. Uh, so I'll be taking some opportunities throughout our time this morning for you to get to know me a little bit and uh, my career journey along the way. While my current career today is in a senior marketing position uh, at an agency, God, in his perfect wisdom, led me on a very winding path when I had a fine head of hair <laughs> um, across a wide variety of workplaces and industries and often, it, it often came with an undesirable set of responsibilities. So I'll give you some of those examples this morning. Um, I worked in uh, retail, uh, folding uh, very small crop top shirts and plaid button downs uh, in the young women's junior section of a Nordstrom. Uh, that was my first job. And I worked in healthcare, and that involved sanitizing IV machines that had been, uh, were no longer needed by patients, as well as portable toilets. Um, and uh, the one unfortunate destination for those objects where we needed to clean those was in the uh, worst place for somebody who jumps at every suspenseful scene in a movie, the morgue. <laughs> um, sales, I hawked uh, unreasonably expensive cookware and juice, juicing machines, the clientele that consisted of any unfortunate family member or loved one that let me do a sales presentation to them. Human resources, I printed and filed and folded thousands of documents uh, to run a job fair for a bunch of uh, forklift drivers and uh, workers in a warehouse distribution center who were all being laid off because there was a massive uh, merger. Uh, food and hospitality, um, I waited tables at a small restaurant in Ann Arbor, Michigan, college town, on uh, the most unfortunate shift, uh, Saturday afternoons, when 100,000 people are cheering a, uh, a team, uh, like a football team, uh, um, and uh, there's you know, very few people who walked in the door, so um, please tip your servers. <laughs> As a result of the series we've embarked on today, I thought it'd be useful to reflect on the lives of some everyday people who loved God in the Old Testament. And we've heard about one of them, Daniel. I've also been reading about Esther and Joseph. You know, these everyday people were not priests or prophets, but God planted them precisely into positions of influence to serve his kingdom plans. Everyday people who lived in a time when the prevailing culture and their workplaces were not welcoming and frankly hostile to followers of God. But I must say to you all this morning, I especially love the story of Esther. And I'm thinking many of you may as well. For those of you not familiar, Esther lived at a time when Jews were dispersed throughout the Persian Empire from modern-day India all the way to Ethiopia. It's a big one, right? Um, King Xerxes, the Persian emperor, in a rage that ejected the previous queen for her defiance's commands to appear at a banquet in his honor. She's replaced by a beautiful young Jewish girl named Esther, who Xerxes loves so much that he elevates her to be his new queen in the royal palace. Now, the Bible account is clear that Esther makes a number of moral compromises, uh, including sleeping with King Xerxes, 
despite not being married to him, and she also keeps her Jewish identity a secret. But despite the moral and cultural and spiritually ambiguous situations, God still chooses to work through her and positions her in a place near the center of power. Isn't that interesting? Anyone else here, when you look in the rearview mirror of your life, see a road littered with missteps and imperfections and both small and large that you sometimes feel disqualifies you from God's favor and purposes, maybe your own broken ankle. Esther's close relative, Mordecai, discovers a racist plot by a high official in Xerxes' court to allow all Jews across the Persian provinces to be murdered and their wealth to be plundered. An awful thing. Mordecai sends a message to Esther pleading her, pleading to to her to use her position in the royal palace to prevent this injustice against her own people. And as they both know, this is no small ask. If she goes to make a request to King Xerxes without first being invited, the penalty could be her death. As a follower of God, however, Mordecai tells her in Esther 4.14, And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for a time as this. We don't have time also this morning to read all 10 chapters of the book of Esther, but I'll spare you the, all the details, and I'll, a quick summary is Esther and Mordecai both display tremendous courage in their positions of influence to partner with God to rescue the Jews from imminent danger. And to this day, the events of this book are actually celebrated as one of the Jews' most joyous and jolly holidays. All because followers of God, despite their present circumstances, had faith in King Jesus and a kingdom they couldn't see but knew was real. After my spring of less than impressive jobs, uh, one day an opportunity to interview for a junior project management role uh, at a industry-leading advertising agency here in Chicago fell into my lap. I didn't feel particularly confident in my attractiveness as a candidate because I lacked basically any relevant experience other than getting the opportunity to interview. And uh, I still remember, I don't remember many of the questions, but I remember one, and they asked me, what is your proudest work achievement? Uh, and I had a tough time answering it because there was not much to mention. As you can see, I've just mentioned all those other things, not very impressive. And the best answer I could come up with was to recount a story about a grueling backpacking trip I had done with some college friends to Alaska. Because it was the most uncomfortable thing I had said yes to as a backpacking and hiking novice. Despite my complete and utter lack of requisite knowledge about advertising and for reasons I still don't understand, they decided to hire me. And I felt like I won the lottery. Uh, it was like if you had taken video footage of me that day, uh, on that first day, you would have seen me wide-eyed, marveling at the size of everyone's monitors. Uh, oh, they have ping pong tables and foosball tables. Uh, the never-ending supply of free beverages where I picked up my 
lifelong diet soda habit, uh, the billion dollar views, the Chicago River amongst our world-class architecture, no bias, born and bred Chicago, the art prints and the vinyl toys that people use to decorate their uh, little office spaces. And then, and then I saw it. If I hadn't been trying to take in every single detail that day, I just might have missed it. While I was vigorously shaking the hand of an animator I just met that day, I saw out of the corner of my eye a certificate that he had pinned up on one of his walls with the words Bible study at the top. And at first I thought to myself, oh, he's a fellow follower of Jesus. I can't wait. And as I scanned the rest of his wall, the profane messages, the other art he had up, it was pretty clear and I was well aware that uh, he did not mean to bring glory to God with the certificate. He, he intended for it to be displayed in a mocking manner, to poke fun at and label anyone who trusted the Bible as a life-giving truth to be nothing but a fool and a bigot. Friends, to be honest, uh, my initial response that day and for many days and months and frankly for most of that year uh, I was one of quivering fear, loneliness, and uh, feeling uh, just full of uh, defenselessness. Um, how could I live boldly as a Christ follower in an environment like this? How was I going to survive, let alone thrive, in an environment where a Christian worldview was frowned upon and scoffed at, where competing uh, um, Priorities meant pursuing profits and achieving acclaim at any cost um, as an a chief objective. And generally, when I looked around, there was a blindness to abuses of power, destructive addictions, and a bending of truths always being overlooked and ignored. Unfortunately, I chose the remainder of that year to focus on charisma over character in the workplace. And what that looked like was a lifestyle of split personalities. Uh, Sheeta was sharing some of this earlier. The Sunday version of Charles, which included visible but hollow worship, produced dry-as-bone prayers, a lack of meaningful spiritual fruit, and frankly, very little kingdom impact. And Monday through Saturday, that version of me placed an overemphasis on going above and beyond at every opportunity to excel, to impress my peers, to get promoted by any means necessary. And mind you, that this didn't just involve uh, working late every night, but was also the reason uh, I found myself at the end of my first Christmas party uh, falling asleep in a dunk, drunken stupor at a Borders bookstore bathroom stall downtown, um, just trying to keep pace with teammates who had started the day of debauchery with shots of hard liquor at the crack of dawn. I remember meeting a fellow Christian that year who chose to vulnerably share an area of sin that she needed to confess, to receive the redemption and grace that only Jesus could offer. But she was so disappointed by my lack of genuine relationship with Jesus that we never talked about our shared connection as Christians again. By deciding to make God invisible at work, and placing his crown on my unrighteous head. Friends, I'd fallen into the oft-repeated sin that we see all throughout the history of the Jews, God's chosen people, and the world. 
throughout biblical history. I had abandoned God's greatest commandment to have no other gods before me, to put nothing else ahead of God. And the changes had been subtle and small at first, but before I knew it, I traded away my identity as a citizen of a heavenly and eternal homeland for a shallow sense of belonging. Church, it's for this very reason. John 17 records Jesus praying at the Last Supper. One of the last words he says in that moment were these words. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not, it, not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. It's a wildly accepted notion that the Bible text here inspired the common phrase, living in the world but not of it. But can I draw your attention to this passage in John 17? I, I don't know that that's what this is saying. Notice how Jesus establishes, first, we are not of the world. It's important that we recognize our identity as eternal members of God's family and sojourners in this world. Then, from a position of heaven as our home, he sent us into the world. As we read, as we read earlier in 2 Timothy, it's important to use God's living word to correct and train ourselves in order that we can be equipped for every good work. In light of John 17, wouldn't you agree that the Bible is actually teaching us that we are not of this world, we are sent into it? Reading and remembering and saying it in this manner is so important. It reminds us that we're not called to disassociate ourselves with the world and to flee from it, simply being in it. There's an action a movement. We've been hearing that over and over today, and, and the Spirit is really, I, I think, obviously wants to share that word with many of us today. Uh, there's an action and movement implied and described here where we are sent. We're propelled as citizens of heaven into the world. We're on mission to advance God's kingdom and gospel and to bring freedom to others and to rescue those who don't know how much God loves them. Some significant time has passed since the fumblings of my first year in advertising nearly two decades ago. I'm older than I look, trust me. <laughs> and since then, bit by bit, he's been sanctifying me through the truth of his word, patiently teaching me to conform my life to the patterns of heaven instead of the world. When we've been sent into the world, we partner with an almighty God to bring the marvelous scent of heaven and the aroma of Christ into our workplaces. As we begin to close, I have a few practical suggestions for what this might look like as followers of Christ to be sent into the world. Integrity, standing firm and choosing not to inflate numbers or impacts of results, exaggerating the success of an endeavor. 
or embellishing our involvement in an assignment or a project when we're going over a resume in an interview. I say all these things as confessions of things that I've either temp been tempted to do or done myself, right? Peacemaking, sowing seeds of peace by walking away from unwholesome talk, including dishonoring dialogue about people when they're not present, and inviting the blessing of peace by abstaining from participating in divisive talk in social settings and platforms, which might create a stumbling block to the gospel. I once heard a wise woman say that our lives are in face-to-face -face and online interactions, they should, it should primarily reflect whose we are, not who we are. Distinction, being set apart. By removing ourselves from participation in a team or client event or after-hours entertainment that plainly ignores God's call for us to freely live set apart, choosing to use language from our mouths, our keyboards, our gaming headsets that is befitting of a citizen of heaven. Our king loves justice, using fairness, not favoritism, managers, directors, VPs, to make decisions about how people are honored, rewarded, and compensated for their work, being slow to speak and quick to listen, to fight false first impressions. Two more. Boldly choosing a life of meekness and humility by taking responsibilities for mistakes we've made without delay. And lastly, stewarding our time, resources, and capital as precious gifts from a mighty and generous God in two ways. Finding satisfaction and diligence, not procrastination, to abide in God's plans for work, and that allows rest. And setting aside the lie that our role, fill in the blank, chef, cop, copywriter, is the main basis for our meaning and identity. I mentioned earlier feeling quite silly about the answer I gave to the question about proudest achievement in that first interview at my first agency. And I'd like to add a little epilogue that you might find interesting. I was, in, I was invited to join that six-week trip to Alaska by a mutual friend who was uh, arranging a road trip from the Midwest all the way up to Denali, Alaska. Uh, the trip was going to consist of four of his very close Jewish friends. He was Jewish himself, who he'd grown up with summer, every summer hiking and camping, and they knew how to tie every knot and exactly how to you know, uh, create the least weight to carry all their stuff. And I was a novice. Uh, I agreed to go, like I, I, I spoke and shared about earlier, and when you drive 9,000 miles with a bunch of guys, you kind of get to know them. <laughs> Most of our conversations I found as I tried to sh get a sense of their faith to see if they had, a, it was a cultural faith or uh, a working faith, uh, their Jewish faith, um, I, I noticed that they had harbored a distrust of all things Christian, uh, and I could understand that, and uh, that conversations about my Christian faith were, were not welcome. Throughout the trip, I faithfully read the Bible in the mornings and prayed and did my best to love them through Jesus, uh, knowing that he had sent me to invade their worlds. 
And several years went by after the trip, and I lost touch with uh, all of them. Uh, but one day, I got a call from uh, one of the guys, Michael. And uh, he had gone on the trip with me, and he called me to tell me that he remembered that my joy, my peace, my hope throughout the trip, there was something different. And he wanted to experience that too. So I was able to walk alongside him and help him to pray and accept Jesus and begin his life as a citizen of heaven and child of God. Not of this world, but sent into it to release the scent of heaven. Anthem family, let's use the giftings he's generously heaped on each of you. Our financial resources, our social capital, our networks, our places, our, our positions of work and school. This is a note to you students as well. To fill the earth with God-honoring culture and partner with Jesus to bring flourishing of God-honoring character, not charisma, into our workplaces. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this.